I gave a talk on something. So I'm working on a book on the outbreak of World War I, as are a number of other people. And it is a subject which you're going, going to probably be sick to death of in the next four years. I mean, the anniversary commemorations are already starting. Uh, I know a number of museums are already planning sort of year-by-year commemorations of the Great War. And there's a lot of interest in, in how it happened. I gave a talk on this in, in Washington a few months ago. And the first question I got, which was actually a difficult one to answer, was why do you think you can say anything new about it? And it was asked in a rather belligerent tone, which was quite right, actually. I mean, the tone, I thought, was unnecessary. But um, <laughs> it, th- it is a subject that has been discussed endlessly. And someone has calculated that in English alone, there are 32,000 works on the outbreak of World War I. And you will notice yourselves, if you do a quick look in bookstores or libraries, and you look for outbreak of World War I, outbreak of World War II, outbreak of World War I simply goes on and on and on. And outbreak of World War II is very, very short indeed, because it's much clearer what happened in that war. We keep on asking why it broke out. I think partly because it was such a dreadful event in European history and, and such a crucial event in the history, not just of Europe, but of the modern world. And I think there is a very natural human tendency to say something so awful and so far-reaching in its impact must have had very great causes. Um, More, we tend to say someone or something must have been responsible. I mean, I think we have a sense that this war cannot just be explained, but responsibility and, if necessary, blame must be assigned. And I think it really is partly the reason we keep on asking these questions is partly to do just with the nature of the war, which is, is why I thought it would be helpful, apart from other things, to have maps. And I think you know, all of you, the scale of the destruction. The figures are always slightly debatable because certainly on the Western Front, when empires there collapsed into chaos, records simply were not being kept. But it is possible that 20 million men died or were wounded in that war. And in some countries, France, for example, a quarter of all the men of military age, which by the end of the war meant between about 16 and about 48, were either killed or wounded. And you'll you'll see it, you'll notice it. If you go to France, you'll notice the long lists of people on the war memorials from the First World War and the very much shorter lists from the Second World War. So I think it was partly the scale of the destruction, partly the changes that the war brought. Four great empires fell to pieces as a result of the First World War. Now, this might have happened anyway, but the First World War speeded it up and made it impossible for them to evolve in the ways which they had been evolving before the war. The empires were Germany, which was an empire which included a large number of Polish speakers, for example, and Germany was stripped of virtually all its Polish-speaking territories and of its colonies in Africa and the South Pacific and its concessions in China. The Russian Empire, of course, fell to pieces. We, we all know, I think, about the Bolshevik Revolution. But I think what we often forget is that Russia was not just a regime, not just a country, not just uh, ruled by, by a particular dynasty, but it was also an empire. Huge bits of Central Asia and down into the Caucasus had been absorbed into the Russian Empire in the course of the 19th century. And a huge amount of territory reaching westwards, sorry, eastwards out to the Pacific 
this is why I'm not a geographer, I always get my directions wrong, um, reaching out to the Pacific had been absorbed into the Russian Empire in the course of the 19th century, and a lot of that fell to pieces, and countries began to re-establish themselves very briefly. The Baltic states, for example, Finland, which had been part of the Russian Empire, had at least a brief period of independence between the wars. And other parts of the Russian Empire, Ukraine, for example, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, had very, very brief periods of independence at the end of the First World War and then were gradually reabsorbed into what became the Soviet Union. But Russia underwent enormous changes, both in its configuration and, of course, in the regime that now came to rule it. Austria-Hungary fell to pieces. Austria-Hungary incorporated really huge, when you think of it, if you look on the map, a huge swath of the center of Europe. And in some ways, what has happened in the center of Europe has, has been a problem ever since, because what Austria-Hungary was was a multinational empire, which somehow managed to keep a number of nationalities at least living with each other, not killing each other, at least working with each other. And it is possible that it could have evolved into something else. We, we'll never know. And of course, the fourth empire that disappeared again, probably on its way out, was the Ottoman Empire. And we're still living with the consequences of that disappearance of the shift in ownership of the Arab lands, for example, um, that still living with those changes in the Middle East. The First World War also brought a significant change in the position of Europe in the war, in the world. If we think of Europe before the First World War, and again, you can see, I mean, the, the, the war, I think, often speeds up changes, but you can see the changes are occurring. You see the rise of new non-European powers, such as Japan and the United States, well before 1914. But what the war does is really undermine Europe in a number of significant ways. I mean, before the war, Europe, Western Europe in particular, was still the dominant part of the world. It dominated most of Africa, it dominated large swaths of Asia. It was the chief foreign investor in places such as Latin America, in the United States. It was hugely powerful, commercially hu hugely powerful as a, as, a, as a trading, as a series of trading nations. Enormous, the world's financial capitals were in Europe, in, in London um, in particular, but also in France and in, in Paris and, and Vienna. It also was seen in particular by the Europeans themselves, but also by non-European peoples as the most advanced part of the world. Europe was a model for the Japanese, for nationalist movements around the world, even if they used European ideas, as the Indian nationalists did, and, and turned them against the Europeans. Europe was a source of ideas, Europe was a source of science, Europe was a source of fashion. Europe was the most important part of the world. And what the First World War did was damage at least from the point of view of the Europeans. Others, of course, welcomed it. Damage Europe's dominance, undermined it. Never again was Europe to have the same dominance in the world that it had before 1914. It also, I think, the war itself shook in a very important way Europeans' faith in themselves. And one of the reasons the Europeans had gone out and taken over so much of the world was because they felt they had a right to do it. They had gone out with a tremendous self-confidence, and a self-confidence which had led them, in the case of the British in India, for example, to rule over an enormous subcontinent with a very small number of people. And the British never had more, or very rarely had more than about 100,000 British soldiers there. And then, of course, they had the British Indian Army, the Indian Army, which was officered until after the First World War, largely by British officers, but they controlled India with a very, very small number of people. And I think part of it was a matter of confidence. They had the confidence that they, they had the right to rule it, and a significant number, not all, but a significant number, a necessary number of their subjects accepted that confidence, that accepted um, the right which the British seemed to have to rule India. And what the First World War did is shake 
European self-confidence shake European confidence that they were actually morally better or better psychologically, better politically, more advanced than any other civilization in the world. The waste, the stupidity, the violence, the brutality of the First World War meant that Europeans could never again look at themselves with the same self-confidence with which they had looked at themselves in the period before 1914. The war also left, I think in a very important way, a legacy of violence and cynicism. And there's a lot of very interesting work being done now on the impact of the war on societies. People got used to violence. People got used to killing. And there's some very interesting work being done, for example, on the Central, Asia, the Central European lands, countries that were emerging, such as Poland, where it's being argued that people simply valued human life less as a result of the First World War. And you see it in countries such as Germany. Um, before the First World War, Occasionally, there were attempts to assassinate the Kaiser. I mean, we might regret that they didn't succeed, but um, perhaps we shouldn't wish for that. But after the war, if you look at the nature of German political life, it simply was a lot more violent. Assassinations, political assassinations, political acts of terror became much more frequent, and the violence in the streets became later. So you could argue that in many ways, the First World War really shook Europe to its, to its core and helped to prepare the way to the Second World War, helped to make possible the atmosphere in which the events leading to the Second World War became possible, helped to make possible the rise of extremist parties who had no commitment whatsoever to democracy. And so I think we keep on going round and round about the origins of the First World War, partly because its consequences were so enormous, and in some cases, of course, we're still living with the consequences of those today. There was an attempt made both during and after the war, to find those who were guilty, to find who could have been responsible. At, at the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, the notion of tr war crimes was introduced into international discourse, and there was, was talk of trying the Kaiser. Um, there was also talk of sending him to exile in the Falkland Islands, which would have been an interesting um, story for modern history if he'd actually been, been sent down there. There was also another reason why the origins of the First World War became a matter of such intense debate after the war itself. And that is because they were, in fact, very much tied in with the question of who had won, who had lost. Um, was anyone responsible? If anyone was responsible for the war, in that case, should they pay? And this, of course, comes right to the question of, of German guilt for the war. I mean, Germany was the, really the last surviving of the nations, a, a diminished Germany, but nevertheless a Germany, of the, the, the central powers who had embarked in 1914 on the Great War. And the question of whether Germany was, was responsible or whether Germany was guilty, and, and these questions were related but not exactly the same, and guilt was much more a moral concept, whereas responsibility was more of a legal concept, was very important because if Germany was responsible for the war, and that is what the allies in Paris argued, and that is what they put into their f famous or infamous Article 231 in the Treaty of Versailles, um, which the Germans called the War Guilt Clause, which doesn't use the word guilt. It simply says that Germany accepts responsibility for the First World War, for the starting of, what, of course, what was called then the Great War. And that was a very important question for the whole issue of whether the treaty was legitimate or not. If Germany was responsible for the war, if it could be proved that Germany and, and its ally Austria-Hungary, which of course by now had, had vanished, if it could be proved that Germany and Austria-Hungary were responsible for the war, then it was legitimate to impose a fairly harsh peace on them. That peace was legitimate. The reparations contained in that peace were legitimate. The attempts to disarm Germany 
were legitimate. And so the question of who started the war became an enormously important one in the aftermath of the war because it got tied up with this question of responsibility. And the Germans, of course, argued, and a special section was set up in the German Foreign Office immediately after the war to argue this, that Germany had not been responsible for the war, that the war had simply happened. And the German Foreign Office published a whole series of documents, um, both from the German archives but from the archives of the other great powers, a number of powers were releasing their documents by this point, and the Bolsheviks, of course, had had great fun publishing them because it seemed to show how thoroughly corrupt the Tsarist regime was. So they, they released all sorts of interesting information. The British released their documents, the French released theirs, although there was inevitably a certain amount of selection. And the Germans published huge amounts of documents, enormous great volumes, which you can still find today in libraries, arguing, or which gave the impression... If you, if you read through them, that the war had simply happened, that Germany had not wanted the war, had not willed the war, had not been responsible for the war, that simply Europe had got itself into a, into a state where the war came about. And that view, which was, of course, for obvious reasons, promoted by the Germans, because they used it to attack the whole legitimacy of the peace settlement at the end of the First World War, that view really took root in the historiography, in the public imagination in the 1920s and 1930s. It took root in Germany, of course, because the Germans had never really accepted the fact that they'd lost the war. Um, the Germans had lost the war, and it's quite clear they had lost it on the battlefield, but a myth grew up in Germany, promoted with great enthusiasm, particularly by the right and by the military and by remnants of, of the old imperial regime, that Germany could have fought on, that it had been destroyed, its capacity to fight had been destroyed, not by the heroic soldiers on the battlefield, but by traitors at home who had stabbed it in the back. And the traitors, you can probably imagine for yourself, anyone on the left, um, Jews, Freemasons, and pretty much anyone the right didn't like, were held responsible for Germany's failure to continue the war. And so if you don't believe that you've lost the war, if significant parts of your population don't believe you've lost the war, you have all the more reason to attack the legitimacy of the settlements which has been imposed on you. And the Treaty of Versailles was widely disliked in Germany. In Germany, it was called, among other things, the diktat, the thing that was dictated to Germany, that Germany was obliged to sign. Germany had not, so Germans argued, had the courtesy of being invited to the peace conference to do a proper negotiation. The peace terms had been presented to them, and they'd been given two weeks to comment in writing no debate, no, 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 no negotiations, and basically told to take them or leave it, take, take them or leave them, which is what happened. And so from the German point of view, attacking legitimacy of the peace settlement was very much tied in with showing that the war was not Germany's fault and that Germany should not be held responsible and should not be punished in any way for it. And that view took root not only in Germany, it also took root in the English-speaking countries. It was less... Um, for obvious reasons, less acceptable in France. And the French had very strong feelings about who had started the war, and they, it's quite, you know, from the French point of view, they had been told by Germany that unless they handed over all their frontier forts as a gesture of goodwill, Germany would regard that as, as a hostile act and attack them. I mean, it's quite clear in the French mind that they had been attacked by Germany, that Germany had waged a war of aggression on them. And the Belgians, of course, felt exactly the same thing. But the British, who had had a tremendous debate over whether or not to enter the First World War and where opposition to the war had grown as the war had gone on and when there was considerable feeling as the war ended that this was something that perhaps Britain should never have got involved in. In Britain 
and in the United States, where a very similar feeling grew up. The United States had come in late, a lot of young Americans had died, Americans spent a lot of money thinking they were fighting for democracy and what had happened. The Europeans had gone back to their old ways of power politics, secret treaties. The United States had been hoodwinked into the war. And so when you got attacks on the legitimacy of the peace settlements, when you got this revisionist argument that the war was really nobody's fault, that it was simply something that had hit Europe. I mean, the, the image that was often used was had hit Europe like a thunderclap out of a cl clear blue sky. I mean, it just had happened, and it was really nobody's fault. And those views became very widespread in the 1920s and 30s, and certainly in the English-speaking countries, helped to fuel, helped to encourage the desire to appease those powers that wanted to revise the peace treaties. Um, appeasement was very much fed, was fed by a number of things, an obvious fear, not a very sensible fear of, of repeating the past and having another dreadful war. I mean, this, this, I think, was a very sensible approach to take. But it was also fed by this view that the war had been a mistake and that they should not have got into it in the first place and that Germany should not be held responsible. And so the issue of who started the war became very much part of the political discussion and of international relations in the 1920s and 1930s. And that is more or less where it stayed till the Second World War, which brought about, of course, as, as great historical events always do, um, revisionist thinking. And in the 1950s, you got people saying, well, Germany started the Second World War, that was very clear in Europe. I mean, Hitler had, had been determined to break the peace settlements of the First World War, determined to, to undo the clauses, the chains, as he called them, of the Treaty of Versailles. And so therefore, if Hitler had done that in the, in 19, in the 1930s, perhaps Germany had been doing it all along. Perhaps there, there was, you, perhaps you could look back into German history and see a tradition of German aggression, see a tradition of Germany, even before 1914, of wanting to dominate Central Europe, wanting to use war as, a, as, as an instrument of policy. And of course, the famous controversy, which some of you will have heard about, is the Fritz Fischer controversy. A German historian who, in the late 1950s, wrote a book saying there was a continuity between German war aims um, from well before the First World War up into Hitler's war aims. The, 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 you cannot really, he argued, set, separate them out. And this caused huge controversy, um, huge controversy within Germany, where a number of German historians attacked him, in fact, tried to prevent him going to the United States to attend an academic conference to talk about this. But his view has, I think, become more widely accepted. It's been attacked, and it will continue to be attacked, I think, again, partly because we're still trying to find a single explanation for why it happened. It, it simply may, it may not be possible. I think we have by now reached a sort of consensus that certain powers are reckless. Germany in 1914 was reckless. Austria-Hungary was reckless. Austria-Hungary was determined by 1914, or at least when you say Austria-Hungary, of course, you're really talking about very few people at, in the end who made the decisions. I mean, what you come down to in, in, the, in the summer of 1914 is not that many people making the decisions, but they come out of a much wider world. And I think in Austria-Hungary, um, certainly among the ruling circles, a fear and hostility of Serbia, that small Slavic, South Slav power on Austria-Hungary borders down to the south, that power which was fomenting unrest, was supporting uh, revolutionary movements in territories already controlled by Austria-Hungary, such as Bosnia, which was a siren song, whose very existence was a magnet um, and, and, a, and really represented a siren song to Austria-Hungary's own South Slavs. And Austria-Hungary was having enough trouble 
with its nationalities that it really couldn't afford to have anymore. And so from Austria-Hungary's point of view, Serbia was an ill that was not just poisoning its territories, not just causing trouble in its territories down in the Balkans, but was actually a threat to the very existence of Austria-Hungary. And so I think certainly by the summer of 1914, you, you get a will on the part of key decision makers in Austria-Hungary to destroy Serbia. And you get a decision, a very important decision, made by Germany in the first week of July 1914 to back Austria-Hungary and the so-called blank check to say to Austria-Hungary, okay, um, if you decide to go for it this time, we will support you, whatever you do to Serbia. And of course, the key issue for both Austria-Hungary and Germany was what would Russia do? Russia, which tended to talk in terms of our little brother, our little Serbian brother, although <coughs> privately, Russians were often very rude, Russian diplomats and Russian statesmen were often very rude about our little Serbian brother. Nevertheless, publicly, um, Russia identified itself with Serbia, with the cause of the South Slavs, the Serbs. I mean, it can be overstated, but the Serbs were orthodox too. I mean, some of these things, I think, did matter. And I think what mattered as much for, for, for Russia was to show that it was a power and not to let Austria-Hungary do what it wanted in the Balkans. And so I think what you get is a very dangerous situation by 1914. And so I think you could argue that in the summer of 1914, there are powers that are more culpable than others. But again, the arguments go on. I mean, is Britain responsible? Because it didn't say clearly enough that it would intervene. If Britain had said clearly as the crisis began to unfold after, began to unfold, of course, after the assassination of the Archduke at Sarajevo, on June the 28th, if Britain had said clearly enough, any aggressive moves by any of the powers, um, we will intervene. If Germany makes any aggressive moves towards France, Britain will intervene. Would that have stopped Germany? Um, it's one of those debates which goes on and on. I think the one thing that can be said about the debates, and I, I don't think there is any clear answer, and I'm going to try and explain why I don't think there is, but what I think we might try and understand. One thing I think is pretty clear by now, and that is probably we know as much as we're going to know about the decision-making process. There are some pieces missing. Um, there is still material in the Serbian archives, which hasn't yet, I think, been fully explored. And there is still material in Russia, which hasn't been fully explored. There are some archives we know have been destroyed. The archives of the, the, German, the German war archives, the German war ministry and the German general staff um, were in Potsdam, at, during the Second World War, and when the Russians um, arrived, they looted a lot of the archives. What wasn't taken by the Russians was destroyed by, by Allied bombing. For a long time, the Russians denied they had these archives, but since 1989, uh, perhaps since 1990, um, bits have been coming back, and there may well be more. Um, and we may get a very much clearer picture of what the German military were thinking, although I think we still... Uh, by now have a fairly clear picture. And there are still some episodes which we probably will never know about. There's a crucial moment in July, or crucial few days in July 1914, as things were beginning to um, really slide towards a, a, a serious international crisis, when the French Prime Minister and President, uh, sorry, sorry, French President and, and Prime Minister went to St. Petersburg, um, Poincaré and, and Viviani, they went to St. Petersburg and they had talks as the crisis was, was intensifying with their Russian counterparts, and there is no record of those talks. Um, the, later on, people wrote their memoirs, but the memoirs, I think, cannot be trusted because, of course, after 1918, everyone's trying to show that they had nothing, no responsibility at all and they didn't know it was going to happen. It was some, everyone else's fault. So you have to read those with a grain of salt. So there's some things I think we will never know simply because the records are incomplete and there's no way we're going to get them. There may be some records 
that are still to come out, but I'm not sure they're going to change the overall general picture. What I think we can try and understand, and I think this is the approach which I'm hoping to take in, in the book that I'm writing, is not, I think, to say who is to blame, because I think in a way that's a game that can go round and round and round, and, and we, we may never get any further with it. But can we understand what they were thinking? How did they get to the point by 1914 where war seemed a reasonable option? So what was it that shaped their thinking? I mean, in the end, it was a very few people, as I said earlier, who made the decision but they were very much parts of their own societies, and their attitudes were shaped by their own upbringings, the cultural current, the cultural and intellectual currents of their times. So what was it that was in their minds? What were the sorts of things that they were thinking about the world that made them think, at least enough of them, in spite of their reservations, made them think that war was a reasonable option, even a general war? was a reasonable option. The risks were worth taking in the summer of 1914. And another part, I think, of what they were thinking is what they had already been through. I mean, the memories of what had just happened in the, in, the, in the previous decades, I think, were also important. I mean, you had Russia feeling that it had been humiliated over, over the Bosnian crisis. Um, Russia had thought, or the Russian foreign minister had thought, that he had a deal with his Austro-Hungarian counterpart, that the Austro-Hungarians would annex Bosnia, which was actually under Austrian rule, but was technically still part of the Ottoman Empire. And in return, Austria-Hungary would support Russia's demands at the straits, the crucial straits that come out from the Black Sea into the Mediterranean, which, are, which were and, and still are, of course, very important for Russia for trade and, and militarily. And what the Russians felt is the Austro-Hungarian foreign minister had moved too quickly announced the annexation of Bosnia before the Russians were able to prepare international opinion for getting control of the Straits in some way, for, for setting up a regime at the Straits which would favor them. And the Russians felt humiliated about this. And there was talk in 1908 in Russia of going to war. And the war minister at the time said, we can't. Our armies are in a mess. Our navy it basically doesn't exist. They had just fought um, a dreadful war which they had lost with Japan between 1904 and 1905, and he said, we can't go to war. And this for Russia was dreadful. I mean, for Russia, a great power not to be able to contemplate going to war in defense of an interest was dreadful. And so I think you have the memory, which is, I think, an important factor. And, and other statesmen have similar memories of times when they had been let down, when they had had to back down, when they had, had been humiliated internationally. And so what I'm trying to do, and I think it's, it's at least one way of trying to understand the First World War, is look at what, what were they thinking? Um, and why were they thinking it? And so what I've looked at um, is a number of intellectual currents, and you can probably, among you, think of others, but these are ones which I think help to explain uh, the mental framework of those who are making the decisions. In no particular order, social Darwinism. This was a misapplication of Darwinian theories to human societies, which had tremendous influence in the 19th century. I mean, it was convenient. It was a very convenient theory for empire builders. And what, what social Darwinism argued was that you could um, identify different human races. And they talked in terms of races where we perhaps today would use the term nation often, um, but they did also mean races in, in the sense that, of, of racial distinctions. But they would talk of an English race and a French race and a German race, um, where these, these terms made no sense at all biologically. Um, so you have to remember that they sometimes use race and nation interchangeably. <coughs> but what they did was, was they argued that nations, like species, survive, um, survive 
if they are fit for their environment, if they adapt to their environments. Um, they adapted the notion of the, the survival of the fittest, which they gave a moral sense to. It wasn't just those who were best adapted to the, their environments. It was somehow they were morally superior. They were better at fighting. Um, their institutions were better. Their religion was better. Now, I used to work on British India, which is what I was doing when I first met Ross, and I would find these wonderful things about um, how Hinduism makes the Indian mind vague because there are too many gods, and so they can never sort of think clearly, unlike the British who have a single god, and think clearly. And, and this is, I think, one of the reasons the British preferred the Muslims. You know, they, they found the Muslims just had a single god, and this was a clearer and a more direct way, they thought, of thinking about the, the supernatural. Um, I mean, you've got crazy theories tied in with this. You've got sort of geographic theories that people's environments had turned people into certain types of people. And the French, um, French sociologists, and sociology was, was really pioneered in France. And you've got in France eminent French sociologists saying, you know, the trouble with the Prussians and the Prussians for the Germans, for the French, were the heart of, of the new German nation and, and the, the part they thought most menacing and, and most dangerous and, and most prone to war. And the trouble with the Prussians is they come from very flat territory, and this has made them incapable of clear moral thought and made them very capable of being led by strong leaders. Um, they live in very flat land with no clear horizons and too many rivers. I mean, these, these are, you know, we laugh at now. Um, the trouble is there are probably as many theories around now, which 20 years from on, some of you who are still around will be laughing at. Um, so you get this, these social Darwinian theories <laughs> that um, there is a perpetual struggle for survival. And, and they believed, um, a lot of people who, who, who believed this, and it appealed, of course, to the military, it appealed to empire buildings, but it was in the air also. It was what James Joel, the great um, historian who, who was here for, for many years, called unspoken assumptions. And they were sort of in the thinking of people. They didn't articulate necessarily why they believed it. It was part of, the, of their intellectual baggage. And so you get a sense, if you believe that life is struggle, that... It is necessary for nations to struggle. In fact, and this is tied in with another late 19th century enthusiasm, eugenics, if nations don't struggle, the weaker part will survive. And it, it actually doesn't make sense because if, when nations struggle, it's usually the stronger, um, particularly in the old type of fighting, who get killed. But this was, it was argued that, na that war sort of tunes up a nation um, and it gets rid of the unfit. And so those who are most adapted to survive and lead the nation will survive. Tied in with this, too, is the notion that nations will have hereditary enemies, just like species do. They'll, they'll have natural predators. And so you got a lot, particularly as, as hostility grew between France and Germany after the Franco-Prussian War. You got a lot in both France and Germany about how the other was the hereditary enemy and how it was just simply natural for French and Germans to want to fight each other because they, they understood that the other was different and the other was standing in their way. And then you got some, I mean, I, I came across one the other day, you got sort of subtleties. Um, there was a German um, professor who wrote in, in, at the University of Berlin who wrote a lot about um, the struggle between nations, and he said, you know, you have to admit um, the French did do some great things in the past. I mean, we have to admit that. I mean, French civilization really was something, and, you know, you have to look at Versailles. It really is, you know, we, we, and Louis XIV dominated Europe. But, he said, I think if you look more closely, you will see that most of the leaders of French society, the French upper classes, were really Teutons. And he used to spend his holidays going around French churches and looking at effigies on tombs and picking out what he felt were proper Germanic features. So he said that it, it wasn't really the French doing it. It was the admixture of 
German blood, blood from further east. So you got a lot of talk by quite respectable people like this. And there was a very respectable professor, I think, at Oxford, I'm ashamed to say, who said that it is healthy for young men to shed blood. It is healthy for societies to shed blood. And of course, he was well past military age, so he could argue argue this. So I think social Darwinism is, is important. I'll just read you one quotation, and this is from Konrad von Hotzendorf, who was the Austrian uh, chief of staff of Austria-Hungary at the outbreak of the war, and who had been a fervent advocate of war, um, really, since about 1908. Um, he didn't really seem to mind who. At one point, he thought Italy would be a natural um, object of war. Serbia, of course, he didn't like at all. Um, he was quite happy to contemplate war- waging war on, on Russia as well. Um, as he said, on the outbreak of the war in 1914, um, the events which led to a general war turn out to be the only, phenome- only phenomena of the struggle for surviving, the dr- for struggle for survival, the driving force in everything. So I do think this is an important part of the intellectual currents of the 19th century. Another very important part tied to it is, is militarism. And, and I wouldn't argue that one is responsible for the other, but I think they influence each other. If you, if you look back at pictures of European societies... In, 19, in, in the period before 1914, I think one of the things that is striking is how often political leaders wear military uniform. Not in all countries, but in Germany, where you have the chancellor putting on his colonel's uniform um, to go to the Reichstag. I mean, which would, in a way which would be unthinkable, I think, today. When you had little school children <coughs> dressed in quasi-military uniforms. When you had military-type organizations being set up for the young and the Boy Scouts, of course, to prepare them um, to be good soldiers. I mean, this was, this was, this was a part of a very conscious uh, purpose of such organizations. Not all. Because you also had socialist organizations, you had church organizations, but you did have, in most European societies, a propensity both to admire the military and to think that military virtues should be imported into civilian society. And when you have societies, and it wasn't true of all European societies, and I think it's probably true of Germany, than it was of Russia, for example, probably (laughs) truer of Austria-Hungary than it was of France. I mean, in France, the military had a very mixed reputation, which the Dreyfus affair had done nothing to improve. But I think you did have a sense in certain, particularly continental nations, but you see it also in Great Britain, that the military are somehow the, the noblest part of the nation, that they're the ones who are prepared to die for it, they're the ones who are prepared to make sacrifices, and that they should be treated with a particular respect and that they should be emulated. And of course, very dangerously in Germany in particular, you get a military which simply doesn't see that civilian control is something that it should have. And the military make their own plans, and they don't bother to tell the civilians. And the civilians don't bother to ask. It's not until 1912 that the German Chancellor, Bethmann Hallweg, actually knows what the German military are planning, actually knows the contents of this famous plan to fight a two-front war, um, a war which could not, in the event it turned out, be only on one front, which had been designed to be fought on two fronts at once. And so I think this was, was another dangerous part of the thinking, that life is struggle, life is about survival, and the military what we need. And we must listen to the military, we must, must respect the military. And again, tied into this, of course, is the tremendous explosion of nationalism in the course of the 19th century. I mean, this is a world in which people are beginning to define themselves in different ways. Worlds in, in Central, Central Europe, for example, where people had defined themselves for centuries as subjects of a particular ruler, or as members of a particular church, or as people who spoke a particular language, or as a mixture of any of those, but had not defined themselves as nations. And what you begin to get in the course of the 19th century, and and there's much debate over where this 
originates, what you begin to get is the development of, of nations, self-conscious nations, people thinking of themselves as parts of nations. And then you get a sense, which we still are seeing, that if you are a clearly defined nation, you should have your own territory, you should have your own institutions. Um, nas nationalism doesn't always lead to a desire for autonomy and, and for a nation state, but it, it seems to um, in 90% of the times. I mean, you're seeing it here in the United Kingdom with Scottish nationalism where the nationalist project, at least for the most fervent Scottish nationalists, will only be complete when they have complete independence. I and mean, it seems to be assumed that if you are a nation, you, you should be governing yourselves and be independent. And this was a tremendously powerful force in the 19th century, which is tied up, of course, with the spread of communications, the spread of literacy. It's more possible for people now to imagine themselves as part of a larger community, more possible than to actually move around their countries, take a train and go to Paris, or take a train and go to London, or take a train and, and go to Petersburg. I mean, tremendous explosion of travel, and cheaper travel, tremendous explosion of, of, of communications. And of course, we, we approve of this, the spread of literacy, and we approve of, of growing democracy, but what it does do is make possible nationalist publics, and nationalist publics which now can make their will felt. Governments, even in autocracies like Russia, which is <coughs> moving very slowly after 1905, towards some form of parliamentary government. It is moving, but very, very slowly. But even in Russia, statesmen complain about public opinion. They're now having to deal with a public opinion. And this is something which pressures statesmen, public feeling, um, public hostility towards the other, public fear of the other. And so I think you get these various intellectual currents, which of course are related in, in, in ways, and, and none, none, I think, is the originator of the other, I think is, is important. Tied in with all of this as well is notions of honor, the honor of the individual and the honor of the, of the state. And there's a lot of talk in the 19th century about manliness and what makes men. And it may well be tied to a fear that modern society is somehow changing human nature. Um, women are asking for a greater share of, um, of, of, of political power. Women are asking for a greater share in society. They're challenging the traditional roles. And I think there is a fear that men are no longer manly enough um, there's a lot of concern that men are losing somehow what made them men. And it seems to me that this is tied to, and I may be wrong, but it seems to me at least worth exploring, a heightened sense of honor. I mean, dueling, which was always present in, in a very small elite part of society, is something that actually seems to be growing. And in a number of continental armies, the British are the only people who, who don't allow or encourage dueling and, and frown on it even in the military. And, and, and for this, they're actually regarded with contempt um, by people like Kaiser Wilhelm II, who says they have no notions of honor over there. They're just a nation of shopkeepers. I mean, they're, they're guided only by the most mercenary of motives. But in the French army, if you were an officer, you could be cashiered for refusing to fight a duel, uh, refu refusing to accept a challenge. And this is in the army of a republic. Um, in the Austro-Hungarian and Russian and German armies, dueling is something you do. Um, you, it, you, uh, you lose your honor if you accept a challenge from someone who is not worthy for you to fight. Um, but they're, 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 you get increasingly elaborate handbooks of when you can fight and when you shouldn't. And I, I found a wonderful example from Austria-Hungary, which gave grounds for challenging someone to a duel. And one of them was looking at someone fixedly while fondling a dog whip. And that was a perfectly legitimate ground for a duel. So I think you get... You get a society under strain, and, and I, I could go into this in great detail, but I won't, which is, which is worried about decadence, worried about what is happening. A society moved by the idea that life is struggle, 
and this, this of course is not true of everyone, but these are powerful currents, I think, moved by nationalist fervor, which is often heightened by, by, by the role of, of, of the, the press, mass press, which is growing, moved also by fear. I mean, what is, strikes me about the Europe before 1914, we, we think of the confident Europe, we think of, you know, there are all these images of the glorious last summer of Europe, but what strikes me is how much fear there was as well. Fear of, of the others, fear of the people just over the border. In Germany, a huge, a, fear, a huge fear of the great Slavic neighbor to the east, a fear of, of people sweeping in from the east, um, fear in France, of course, but fears within society, fears of the political elites and social elites of their own working classes. Are they loyal? Will they fight? Are they capable of fighting? Um, there's a whole uh, argument about whether living in cities makes you decadent and weak. Um, are you capable any longer of doing the sort of thing that you, you need to do to defend your country? Um, but fears also of, of the loyalties. So it's, it's an uneasy society and a society which I think is, is moved by currents of fear, um, gusts of hatred, um, gusts of panic. I mean, one of the things I, I hadn't realized is how many panics there were before 1914. I mean, the British have a great invasion panic in 1908 as the Germans are building up their navy. And there's a huge sort of furor in the press, which is, I think, partly fueled by people like Lord Northcliffe because it sells newspapers. Um, he, he actually encourages a novelist who, who talks about an invasion um, to change the route, and this is a German invasion, of course, from the coast, to change the route to go through the areas where he sells most newspapers, um, <laughs> where he'll sell uh, more newspapers. But there is a fear, um, fear of invasion. The Germans are, are afraid that the British Navy is suddenly going to attack them and, and destroy their fleet. And there are sort of moments of panic, which nobody can quite explain. I mean, one day in a German port, all the parents keep their children home from school because they've heard that the British are coming. And so it's an uneasy society, um, a dangerous society, I think. The other thing I think that is very important part, and I'll just say something briefly about this, of, of their thinking as they come close to war, is, of course, the thinking about what sort of war it's going to be. And this was, of course, increasingly being debated. People recognized, military and non-military alike, that something very significant was changing in armaments, Explosives were getting much more powerful. Um, the capacity of weapons to kill was getting, the, the distances at which they could kill was getting greater and greater. Um, the velocity of shells, the velocity of bullets, all of this was increasing. I mean, there are many f debates about how much, but I mean, I think the standard one is to say that between the Napoleonic Wars and, and 1914, in the course of a century, um, the standard um, shot that an infantryman could, could, could fire went from about 100 yards range to 1,000. It could be accurate at 1,000. And so war is getting much more deadly. It's possible also to put much bigger armies into the field. So what is this war going to be like when it comes? And of course, we now know what it was like. We know it was a war of attrition. We know it was a war where the defense mostly had the edge, particularly on the Western Front, where it was very, very difficult to attack. Once you dug yourselves in with you know, humble shovel, bit of barbed wire, and rapid-firing weapons, it was very difficult for someone to get across what came to be called the killing zone to actually attack you. And so war was moving, the technology was moving war to the defensive, but what the military kept hoping was that they could still attack. I think partly because the alternatives were so awful. And so although there is considerable debate before 1914 about what the next war is going to be, be like, and although you get some very impressive analyses, one by a, by a very famous Russian industrialist called Ivan Bloch, who really describes very accurately 
in a detailed study what the First World War is going to be like. It talks about a war in which two sides get locked together and neither of them is strong enough to win, which will consume the resources of societies and, and eventually <coughs> weaken them possibly to the point of complete collapse. Such warnings tend to be dismissed. And I think what you see here is a very good example of our capacity as human beings simply to ignore inconvenient evidence because thinking about it would make war impossible. And if you really think seriously that the next war, a great war, a war involving a massive number of participants, is going to be unwinnable, then you would give up war altogether. And I think for those whose business it was to think about war, doing that was, was, was almost unthinkable. And I think for statesmen, to think that war could no longer be a tool of state policy was also almost unthinkable. And so what you get is continued, repeated ignoring of the evidence that's right in front of their eyes. The American Civil War, the Russo-Turkish War of 1877, the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, the Boer War, all are showing that it's getting much more difficult to attack, much easier to defend, and what the military thinkers tend to do is they simply say, well, we need to inspire people more. The French say, we need more élan vital. They need to run faster. They need to have a better spirit. They need to you know, get, get there. Um, we're still going to have cavalry charges. We'll just get bigger, faster horses, which will go galloping across the fields. We just put more soldiers in. Um, people did learned calculations. They said, well, you need eight to one, approximately, to um, attack a well-defended position. And so I think they were refusing to accept what was in front of their eyes. And you can understand why. And they could always find, it was always possible to find counter-arguments. So what you get in 1914, I think, are a group of statesmen, flawed human beings with their own problems. I mean, Conrad, the Austro-Hungarian chief of staff, was madly in love with a, with a woman who was already married. And divorce would have been socially disastrous, both for her and for him. And he says in his letters to her, he said, what I really need is to win glory on the battlefield, and then it will become much easier for me to marry you. Um, so I mean, these are personal reasons for wanting war, but they, 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 they come into the calculations. But I think more importantly, perhaps, or, or as important, are the, are the things they have been thinking up to this point, the assumptions they've been making, the emotions they've been feeling, the ways they've been thinking about war, the ways they've been thinking about the enemy, the ways they've been thinking about their own survival. And so you get a situation in the summer of 1914 where enough people think that war is a reasonable option, think that not going to war is worse, for Austria-Hungary, not going to war may mean its destruction. And as one Austrian-Hungarian statesman says, um, you know, we may go down, but it will be glorious. Um, if we choose to commit suicide, at least we're making the choice. And so you get this sense, in some case of fatalism, in some case, nothing could be worse than this situation of not knowing what's going to happen. Let's get it over with. Um, you get assumptions made about what the war will be. I mean, the German military plan is based, uh, the assumption is that there will be a quick victory. And so I think you get a very, very typical human combination of um, unspoken assumptions, ways of thinking which you haven't really examined. And by the summer of 1914, too many people, particularly those making decisions, thinking this is the right thing to do. We really don't have an alternative. My own view is they could have pulled back, but for various reasons, they decided not to. So that's where I'll leave it, but I'm happy to answer any questions. <laughs>